Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. On the podcast this week, we are thrilled to be hosting the twice Booker Prize shortlisted author Mohsin Hamid. Mohsin is the author of five novels, including Exit West and The Reluctant Fundamentalist, as well as a book of essays, Discontent and Its Civilizations. His writing has been translated into 40 languages, featured on bestseller lists and has been adapted for the cinema. Mohsin's latest book, The Last White Man, was published in August of this year. Mohsin Hamid, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. So we always start in our podcast by going back to the guests' childhood and their childhood reading. So am I right in saying you were born in Lahore? And what was life like for for young Mohsin? Well, I was born in Lahore, but I have very little recollection of Lahore because we moved to California, where I lived until I was nine. So my earliest memories really are of, of California. And I suppose the funny part of moving to California was at the age of three, I was a fluent, you know, Urdu and Punjabi speaker. I arrived Mm. in California with my parents. And one day my mother found me crying in front of the townhouse next door to our townhouse. We lived on the campus of the university where my father was doing his PhD. And Mm. the neighbor was looking down, confused at who who is this child who's outside my door. And I was confused at why is this not my mother? And I'm surrounded by a bunch of children (laughs) who who said, what's wrong with him? Why can't he speak? And, And she said, he can speak. And they said, well, why can't he speak properly? And she said, he can. He just doesn't speak English yet. And my parents tell me that for a month after that, I didn't say a word. I just watched television and was quiet, which was very strange for a talkative child. Mm. And when I next spoke, it was in English in full sentences with an American accent. And then when I went back to Pakistan at the age of nine, they discovered that I'd completely forgotten my Urdu. So I guess I had three childhoods, a zero to three in Pakistan that sort of faded in my memory. Three to nine, which is Mm. my earliest recollections of childhood, and then a nine to 18 Pakistani childhood, where once again, I had to figure out a new language and, and adapt to a new place. Mm. Do you think that sat in silence watching TV, that was you sort of absorbing as, as much of the language as possible? Because that's quite an achievement to, after a month to suddenly, I mean, obviously children are very incredibly adaptable. But yes, because I've heard before of people using sort of television as a means to learning a language. I mean, presumably. I mean, also, I think there's probably almost no TV in Pakistan when I was a kid. I mean, there were probably a few hours of, of programming that I didn't find very exciting and I didn't really watch it. So partly it was it was being exposed to American television for the first time, which sort of mesmerized me. But I suspect the other part of it was just my my brain figuring out how to communicate. And I wish I could say it remained that easy when I was nine and I went back home to Pakistan and, and learned Urdu in a month, but it didn't happen at all. It took much, much longer to learn Urdu. And I never learned Urdu as well as I did English. And so Urdu became, in a way, what had been my first language became my third language. English right. is my second language, although it feels like my first language. And I guess I don't have my first language anymore, which is the completely native Urdu of my early early childhood. And so your father, you say in America, was studying for his PhD. Were books a, a big part of fa- our family life? Was reading a big part of family life? Yeah, reading was a big part of family life. My parents read to me at night before I went to sleep. I got my hands onto books, very early comic books and all sorts of books. And I remember in school, there was this sort of book club thing where where you could 
I don't know if it's monthly or quarterly or, or once a semester, you would get this sort of catalog of children's books and you would take it home and you'd pick out a few of the books that you would like and you would order them and they would come and they were sort of fairly low cost books and everybody was doing that and everybody seemed to be reading. So it was, a, yeah, it was a childhood full of reading. Mm, I remember at school doing it, yes, having a similar thing and the excitement of sort of looking through the catalogue and choosing. To a child, there feels something sort of wonderfully grown up about that, about looking through the catalogue, you know, and, and selecting which ones you like the look of. It's exciting for, for children. Yes, it was, the, I guess, the Amazon of its day. This, yeah. this, this every three or six months being allowed to pick <laughs> from this universe of books, which was probably not yes. that many books, but you know, it felt like a lot, and that they would somehow come and be paid for. And yeah, it was miraculous, really. A far more innocent version than uh, than the Amazon, yes, the Amazon of today. Yes, I suspect that they weren't tracking our data very much with those book no, orders. No. <laughs> Hard to with the catalogue, yeah, not the same, definitely not the same thing. And so are there any, from those early days of reading, are there any sort of particular titles that stand out for you as, as books that had a, a particular effect on you? Well, two series that had a, had a real effect on me, I suppose, were Asterix and Obelix and Tintin mm. or Tintin. And I, I had an... One of my earliest friends was a Dutch boy whose father was also a PhD student at the university. And I guess I was exposed to these European comics through him, graphic novels. Mm. And so I would go to the university bookshop with my father. It was a wonderful bookshop and, and periodically get an, a new Tintin or Asterix. But the first, I guess, proper novel that wasn't, I'm sure, the first novel I read, but the first novel that, that really stayed with me was Charlotte's Web. Mm. Charlotte's Web, I think for a lot of people, it certainly stands out for me. I think because I remember being absolutely devastated by it. It was It's one of those childhood reads that I think fall into a specific category of sort of quite heart-wrenching and therefore really sort of stay for you. Was it was it that that particularly stuck with you or was it element other elements of the story that you think stood out to you at the time? I think that Charlotte's Web was probably the first book that made me cry. It, you know, it, it really is a devastating novel in so many ways, beautiful and funny and, and exciting and also very sad. And I guess as I've gotten older and I've thought about that book, what I think it does so miraculously well is it takes the notion of dying and of death and allows us to experience that as something very sad, but also very natural. So Charlotte's Web is, is about the seasons, you know, Wilbur's born and he spends his first season afraid that somebody will want to make him into bacon and sausages. And then he arrives at sort of a slightly old and, and he's with a young girl, Fern, and then he grows and she grows and Charlotte emerges as his defender. And, and then he goes to this fair where he has to win the fair or do well in the fair to be ensured a, a safe, prosperous retirement. Charlotte is now quite old. Her life cycle is moving more quickly. And then I don't suppose I, I, should, mm. I should spoil the novel <laughs> read it by saying what happens next. But what happens next is very sad. But it yes. doesn't quite end there. It ends with, in mm. a sense, a new birth and the beginning of, of, a, of a new phase. And as a child, it really resonates. It really resonated with me because it felt so true. When even then, one recognized that life did have these cycles that we do move through, through these cycles in life, that there was this sadness out there, but that there's also a kind of beauty and a kind of hope embedded in that cycle. And yeah, I thought it was, it was a really masterful novel. And so growing into your teenage years, I've, so Charlotte's Web, how old would you say you were when you read that one? Well, I moved back to Pakistan when I was nine, and it would have been, I imagine, at least a couple of years before that. So I'm, mm. I'm guessing around seven, but I, I, I'm not exactly sure. 
And sort of as you grew, uh, as you grew older, entered your teenage years, what sorts of things were you reading then? What books interested interested a, a teenage you? Well, I flew from California back to Pakistan, having not been to Pakistan for six and a half years. We flew via Chicago, New York, Toronto, and it was winter time. It was freezing. I remember in, in those places. And then we arrived in, in London after right around the time John Lennon's assassination in New York. The UK was quite strange to me because it compared to California, 1980s London, it felt, I don't know what the right word is, but, but somewhat impoverished and somewhat, it hadn't perhaps yet fully recovered from the trauma of the Second World War. There were no escalators. There seemed to be only stairs. There were only, I think, three or four television channels. The houses yes. were cold and didn't feel properly heated. The taps emitted one stream of scalding hot water and one stream of cold water, which seemed a very odd way of having water to wash your hands. And it really struck me that, that this place is sort of, it felt in a way of, a, of an earlier bygone era compared to the Bay Area of California. But it had wonderful bookshops. And I went into these bookshops and I picked up some books. And among the books I picked up were The Hobbit and I think the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh, yes. And, and those two books, which I began reading in London and then took with me to Lahore and then kept reading in Lahore and then in bookshops in Lahore, the other books of those series, those books were, were very influential. I spent, I think, a, a big chunk of, my, of the next phase of my childhood reading fantasy, you know, reading all of the Narnia books and reading not just The Hobbit, but The Lord of the Rings. And then I'm almost ashamed to say some of the, some of the lesser known bits of Tolkien universe that were that I was able to get on, on holidays or in bookshops in the years to come. But really, I think probably The Lord of the Rings was, was the most impactful of all of those. I remember reading in the Narnia series, after The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the book that probably moved me the most and I read the most often was The Horse and His Boy. And The Horse and His Boy was very interesting because it was about, in a way, these desert people, people to the south of Narnia and a romance between this young boy and this young girl as they, as they make their way to Narnia. And it spoke, in a way, to a kind of sense that I, being between two worlds, of being in this world of Pakistan and this world of, of the West, which felt a bit more like Narnia. So it was a book, probably of, of all the Narnia books, is the one that I read the most, even more than The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, I reread it many times, and I remember at one point it sort of had pistachio ice cream stains on my copy because I would eat pistachio ice cream and read it at the same time in the, in the summer. But it was really, I think, the Tolkien books that had, that had the more profound impact. And I don't know how old I was. It was, you know, quite young, I think, shortly after returning to Pakistan. So 10, maybe 11, when I, when I embarked upon The Lord of the Rings. And I clearly never read a, a story that, that was so many pages and that took up so much time. But, you know, I read it more than once. And, and while The Hobbit was fun, The Lord of the Rings really sucked me in into that universe. And I suppose the other seminal text of my late tweens and early teens would have been Frank Herbert's Dune, which was science fiction, but enormously fascinating for me. The story of Paul Atreides, this young boy, prince who arrives on the desert planet of Arrakis. And the desert planet of Arrakis, in Frank Herbert's rendering, feels like a very sort of Muslim place. Many of the words are, are Arabic and Muslim words. Many of the ideas of the religion of the Fremen and, and the culture of the Fremen seems to come from these places. And of course, Frank Herbert had spent a whole bunch of time in the Middle East and Southwest Asia, including in Pakistan, as a kind of ecologist looking at low water agriculture and stuff like that. So I, I felt that, I guess, like the horse and his boy, that the dune was a book of being between places of this sort of drier, more mm. desert place and this other place where there's more water and, and a different kind of a thing. It, in a sense, both of those 
novels felt a bit of, of novels about East and West and North and South as much as they were about, you know, one fictional community and another fictional community. So that was also hugely influential. And I'd say probably Lord of the Rings and, and Dune were the most important things that I read in my early, mid-childhood. At what point did you start considering the idea of telling your own stories, of writing yourself? When did, when did that element sort of enter into your mind? Was it in these teenage years or had it started earlier or, or was it later than that? So as a little boy in California, already I was playing imaginary games by myself and with friends. We would imagine that we were having some kind of adventures as, as pirates or space adventurers or whatever it was. And I, of course, playing by myself, continued to imagine that I was some kind of, you know, space hero or adventurer or some swords and sandals kind of universe. And then I discovered in my really last months in Pakistan, in America, sorry, Dungeons and Dragons. And I think I only played it once or twice, but I, I encountered <laughs> this world. And then I, I suppose I got a few basic Dungeons and Dragons books and moved back to Pakistan where nobody I knew played Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and and where I didn't play with anyone either, but I started to make these dungeons and make these worlds in which mm. eventually I would have these Dungeons and Dragons campaigns, which I basically never had. We, I, I did very little playing of Dungeons and Dragons with other people. Not none, but very little. But I was fascinated by building these worlds. And so I would spend many hours for many years designing worlds in which, in which you could have these adventures. And, and I, you know, I, I was a bit of an odd kid. I liked atlases and I liked almanacs. And, and in those days, you know, atlases were these fantastically detailed and beautiful books that contained incredible maps. And there was no Google Maps. There was no Google. There was no internet. And so on an atlas, you could see the world and you could see finer and finer gradations within it, smaller and smaller areas. And sometimes you'd see the topography or you'd see the agriculture or you'd see the, the density of people or other things. And in the almanacs, there'd be little ent entries like, you know, a couple of pages long on each country. And I was fantasizing, I guess, in my childhood about, about new countries, countries that were a small island off of Pakistan and also the Bay Area of California. And in some weird way, I suppose I was trying to create places in my imagination that would encompass people like me who were of two places in a way. So looking back, that seems both like a very bizarre kind of childhood, but also a real proto-novelist childhood. The desire to enter into fictional worlds and to create them and to map them out in great detail was important to me. And I kept doing this as I became a teenager and, and I would think of these things. And, and it, was when, it wasn't until I got to university at 18 that I began really writing fiction and discovered that I wanted to be a novelist, but that I was already somebody who liked to spend time in their imagination making worlds in enormous detail was pretty clear as a teenager. It sounds like, as you were saying, you were sort of trying to create a world that would sort of fully inhabit you or sort of would reflect your experiences and I suppose, would you say in a similar way today when you're writing, it's a, a way of sort of understanding the world that you inhabit? Is, is that what you would say would you doing or would you disagree with that and say that when you're writing, you're, you're attempting to do something else? I think that that's right. I think that there's some degree of trying to understand the world I inhabit and some degree of resistance to the world that I inhabit. There's something about the world that I inhabit that doesn't quite feel right to me. As a child, when I was trying to merge, I suppose, the worlds of Pakistan and America and some fictional country. It was that, that I suppose I felt I, I wish I lived in a world which was more merged in that way, where both my Pakistani and my American sides could sort of be united, as it were. And I think my fiction does a little bit of that too, is that, is that it is an attempt to understand a world that doesn't quite feel right on a number of different things, but also perhaps an attempt to inhabit a world in response to that, to, to enter an imaginary world which 
in some senses feels more hospitable, even if what's happening in that world is, is often not very nice and quite tragic in some situations, that, that the direction of that world is one is one that feels more welcoming. And, you know, my first novel, Mott Smoke, was a novel that looked at, you know, young urban life in Pakistan and sort of drugs and sex in, in you know, contemporary South Asia, which hadn't been done very much in that way, literary fiction. And it was, it was, I guess, an attempt to look at Pakistan as an insider, but also with, guy, with, a, with a gaze that was at least partly American. And oh, then in The Reluctant Fundamentalist, my second book, it was the reverse. And I attempted to, in a sense, look at America with, with a gaze that was partly Pakistani. And, mm. and then each of the three books after that have, I suppose, taken on some kind of theme that was important to me and tried to deal with it, but also to find a note of optimism within it. Mm. And particularly with the case of, we'll talk more about The Last White Man later on, the, with books like Exit West and The Last White Man also inhabiting a world that feels intensely familiar, but then has this sort of not otherworldly aspect, but has an element in it. Something's happening within it, which is sort of beyond this world. It, it's kind of reality plus, if that if that's fair to say. I I know you've spoken before about your what is reality and your sort of views on reality with it within writing, but yes, I you know I I've always been I guess a bit of a fantasist and a daydreamer, and so I'm inclined to being. A little bit supple with the idea of what reality is, mm. and I, I'm I'm not sort of a fantasist in the sense that I believe that there are magical things going on that affect our lives. I'm I'm a fairly I guess in that sense rationalist and sort of scientific person, but I do believe that the way in which we construct reality is a lot more weird than we often imagine. You know, for example, mm. that 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 there's no such thing as the color red. Uh, red, like all the other colors is the way that our brain represents to us the information that light is being reflected off an object at particular wavelengths. Mm. It's a symbolic language that our brain has for communicating information to us. And the self that the brain is, is talking to is itself being constantly created and shaped. And it, it largely mm. consists of stories that we tell about who we are. And, and sometimes we'll behave in ways that seem quite terrible or, or nasty or unpleasant. And and we'll say that I wasn't myself, but it, it, we were ourselves. It was just that the story we tell about ourselves isn't entirely true. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think as we progress in our knowledge of, of science and progress in our knowledge of, of, of human beings, we come to understand that, that the reality that we believe we inhabit is itself a kind of construct of this biological system of the self, of the human body. And so for me, it becomes quite interesting to, to play with elements of that, to say, well, you know, what if? We were to slightly, very slightly skew things. Everything else the way that, the way it is, but to skew things very slightly. And I think that that opens up a kind of imaginative space and room for, for a kind of creative playfulness on the part of the reader. And that for me is very interesting. Yes. And using that, it, it feels to me when, again, without sort of giving too much away, but when reading The Last White Man, it, it's sort of using using a fiction to reveal a fiction within our world, if that, if that makes sense. It, it absolutely does. I mean, I think that what is useful is when we are using our imaginations to reveal to ourselves how much of our world is imagined into existence. So The Last White Man, for example, deals with the subject of, of race and a young man who wakes up dark but had gone to bed the night before light. And race is something that we've imagined into existence. It doesn't really exist. We, we, it's not like a waterfall or like a planet. Of course, we have darker and lighter skin and we have different features, etc. But, but we have different blood types. Yes. And we certainly don't imagine 
that uh, because we have different blood types, we have there's an A positive race and an O negative race, even though one could argue the consequences of those blood types are even more profound than some of the other differences that we focus on. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you transfuse an A positive blood into an O negative person, you'll probably kill them. To, to read onto particular aspects of physical appearance, this whole set of categories, you know, of a sense of threat and suspicion and inferiority or superiority or just difference is an entirely fictional imaginary creation. And so since we've imagined race into existence and, and because we've imagined it into existence, it does exist with sort of terrible consequences. But because we've imagined it into existence, it's worth asking ourselves, how do we imagine it into existence? And do we wish to imagine it in this way? And might we choose to imagine differently? And so I think one of the rules of, of a novel can be to, I guess, allow a reader to experience the way in which they imagine things, to become conscious of the way in which one imagines things, mm-hmm. and then to become a bit more volitional in choosing whether one wishes to continue imagining things in that way or, or to consider other ways of imagining them. Absolutely. And one thing I'm interested in is how now sort of jumping earlier, we were talking about your childhood, uh, jumping forward to today, you're a successful novelist. And, and how does that affect your reading? Would you say that sort of shaped what you read now? Do you find yourself reading things more now for, you know, as part of research or or as, you know, things to sort of spark off creativity? Or can you still sort of sit down and, and just read for, for pleasure? What gives me pleasure perhaps has changed. So sometimes when I read to my children, I read children's books and they give enormous pleasure. But mostly, I suppose, what I read now is, is what, what is called literary fiction, you know, mostly but not exclusive. And, and that probably began for me in my late teens and going to university and thereafter when I read, I read the, what we would might consider the great works of, of literature book. And, and I read my, my, my fellow contemporary writers, some of whom are my friends. I read my friends' work. I read those writers who, are, who I admire, those who are doing formally interesting things or writing in interesting ways. And I also read across time. And in particular, a few years ago, I began this project of, of reading some of the really more ancient literary texts that we have and to see, in a sense, how did we come up with storytelling and what form did our early stories tell and and, and perhaps one of the most interesting things that I read recently was the Sumerian epic of, of Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh is a story that was you know, written in cuneiform and, and, and uh, comes to us on these tablets. And it's thousands of years older than Homer or than the Old Testament or the Bible or, or the Hebrew Bible. And it's a fascinating tale because Gilgamesh tells us the story of Gilgamesh, this hero, who um, this wild man comes out of the, of the wilds of, of, of the deserts to menace his town and Gilgamesh is sent to confront him and they battle, but in their battle, Gilgamesh wins, but also he really finds himself that he's found a, a true friend and he and, and, and his former nemesis become best buddies. And, and, then when, and then when that man dies, Gilgamesh is shocked to discover that, that heroes like them can die. And, and it seems to him that, you know, what is the point of life if there is this mortality, if we can die in this way? And, and he goes on this epic journey. And, and it's very interesting because in Gilgamesh, there is a, a flood narrative, which is, once you've read it, it's, it's sort of impossible to read the, the flood narrative of Noah in quite the same way ever again. You see this narrative of the flood and the building of a kind of ark and all this sort of stuff. And also, I think in this in this heroic quest that he embarks on, there are echoes of what will come later in in the in the Odyssey, in in, in Homer and in, in other literature. And one of the big things I took away, I suppose, from this is is how 
human civilization can't really be neatly divided into this mm -hmm. Western and Eastern or, or sort of, you know, Greek and, and Middle Eastern or, uh, you know, we have a shared cultural history, which has been a bit weirdly uh, divided up in much the way that we've been sort of weirdly divided up by, by race. And it's, it's clear that the literatures of the Eastern Mediterranean, including the Sumerian tradition and the tradition that gave rise to the Bible and uh, the tradition of, of ancient Egypt and the tradition of the Greeks, were all in constant conversation with each other mm. and inherited from each other. And for us now to imagine that each of them is a different tradition and that we belong to one of them and, and, and that is our literary history is perhaps as bizarre as imagining that we belong to these different races that are fundamentally different. Yes. So, so I guess part of it for me is, was the question of why wasn't I taught literature this way? You know, why was I taught Pakistani literature and sort of British literature and, and as though these things were, you know, little cocoons? Why wasn't I sort of given at some point a sweep of world literature and how, in a sense, we're united by these ancient stories that, that formed all of the traditions that we belong to? And, and Gilgamesh for me was a, was a real eye-opener in that, in that journey. Yes, you describing the plot there, it is amazing how many, you know, your brain, because I think brains are so good at finding the connections between things. I'm thinking, oh, that sounds like that story. Or when you were talking about these two warriors who become best friends, I'm thinking, I mean, it's not quite the same, but like Achilles and Patroclus and you, all these. It sounds like, as you said, reading those earlier stories, is a, it really shows you that the shared human need to tell stories is a universal one. And actually, as you say, these stories have been passed around for, for thousands of years and that it's weird that we now go, oh, well, we have the ancient Greeks over here, they were doing one thing. And then as time has developed, all these people over here, they do their own thing. But it's all one sort of big conversation, as you say. It, it really is. I mean, for us to imagine that the ancient Greeks are in direct conversation with the Bay Area of California, but had no conversation with the Egyptians and Mesopotamians immediately next door to them, it seems kind of preposterous that sort of Homer emerges from the mists of time, you know, fully formed as the beginning is bizarre. Also, one other thing which, which is quite strange when you begin to read in this way is you discover that the first known author in human history is, is a woman, and that she was a priestess and a poet and wrote these hymns, and her name is Enheduanna. And I thought, it's so strange that round about nearing the age of 50 when I, when I read this, I'm, an, I'm a novelist, and I've been writing novels for 30 years. I'm almost 50 years old, and I never knew the name of the first historical writer that we have. And I didn't even know that this writer was a woman. Mm -hmm. Why isn't that taught? I mean, that seems like a strange yes. thing, that in the historical record, we have somebody's name. We have some of their surviving hymns. It was a woman. Surely this is of some significance. Like, why didn't I know this? And so... It made me just think of, of, of the bizarre way in which we're taught literature. Yes, it would be much much more interesting if um, we were taught literature as opposed to, yes, these isolated little pockets. We looked at the full sweep of yeah. the earliest through to through to the, the more contemporary work that people would be uh, Absolutely. And, and, I, and I don't think a, a, a reading list like that needs to be incredibly in-depth. But I think it would, be, it would be nice for children to learn early on, oh, well, this is the, this is the first author that we know of. This is her name. This is Gilgamesh, which we read alongside the Odyssey and the Iliad when we read those books. This is etc. etc. I'm not saying that people should spend many, many years, as I have, sort of reading forward through time. I mean, that sounds like a pretty in-depth project. But I think even, even a few minor gestures to fill in details would perhaps immediately help reorient us from this, from this bizarre notion that we have these individual traditions that kind of sprung forth independently, as opposed to that we're part of a human literary family that, that shares a common ancestry.
Exactly. Otherwise, it's sort of almost listening to sort of one side of a conversation. You can sort of fill in the gaps, but you, a lot of context is missed if you're... Absolutely. If you're just, and and not yeah. even... And, and we're listening to one side of a conversation and the last five minutes of one side of a conversation. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. so it, it would be nice to have heard some of the beginnings of it. But yes, so I, I would recommend Gilgamesh to anybody who wants to, to venture back. Absolutely. A big question I have for you now, which I always feel is, is a tricky one to ask and certainly a tricky one to answer... Is a, is a book that changed your life? So, I mean, there have been many books that have changed my life. And I remember re- reading, you know, Chinua Achebe's uh, No Longer at Ease in, in high school and really being moved by that book because it's a story of a young man who leaves Africa to study in Britain, returns home, and is no longer at ease. And that resonated a great deal with me as somebody who's moved between places and, and was about to leave Pakistan again to go off for college in the U.S. And so it had a, had a big impact on me. And there were many others, reading the author Babsi Silva, who wrote about Lahore, and, and thinking, just reading Lahore rendered in English in this way and thinking, wow, okay, this can be done and, and so many. But, but the one book I'm, I think I'd like to talk about now is, is Beloved by Toni Morrison. And that book was, was particularly interesting to me because uh, it was a book we were recommended to read before we went to college. I went to Princeton and, and they, get, they sort of told you, here's a, you know, each, I guess the students were told to read a book before coming if they wish to. I didn't read Beloved before coming. And then, then there was this opening lecture uh, of the university, which was delivered by Toni Morrison, who taught at Princeton and would, and would some years later win the Nobel Prize. She gave this spectacular lecture on Beloved and where it came from and how it was built. And it was unbelievable. And, and I hadn't read, I hadn't read uh, Beloved at that time. And, and I was just blown away. And I thought, okay, wow, I've, I've arrived at this is a proper university. This is, this is some you know, amazing stuff that's being, and this, this, is, you know, this is day one. So I haven't had any classes yet. I'm thinking, okay, this is the sort of level of discourse and thought that I'm going to be exposed to. This is unbelievably fantastic. But still, I didn't read Beloved. And, and then three years go by. I've, I've taken a couple of creative writing workshops. And then Tony Morrison in my senior year, my final year of university, in my final semester, offers this long fiction workshop where she would take a handful of students. I don't know if there were four or five of us, something like that. And we would each, instead of writing a few short stories, work on one long story. So I signed up for this class and you had to apply. And then she accepted me. And and I wrote the entire first draft of my first novel in this class. And, and she, instead of sort of, <laughs> I think she could have easily said, look, I, I wanted 40 pages, not an entire book. To, you know. but, she, but she very kindly read the whole thing and gave me you know, detailed feedback and was a you know, very helpful teacher and um, very encouraging. And, you know. um, and one day, you know, in the middle of the class, I think she would, she would have lunch with each of her students once or something like that. And and on our lunch, she saw that I had a backpack and a pile of books, and, and, and she saw that I had jazz, her novel. She said, what have you got there? And I sort of I said, well, I've been reading jazz. And she took it from me, and she signed it for me. And then she said to me, read Beloved. It's good. And the way she said good, she sort of stretched it out. You know, it's good. And, 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 and she read so beautifully. Toni Morrison, everybody knows that she, she, she's one of the greatest writers of, of, you know, uh, of my lifetime, certainly. But she was also probably the best reader I've ever met. She could read anything. She would read our stories and it would sound fantastic when, you know, these sort of clunky stories would, would somehow transform into these incredible works of art in, when she read them out loud. And so she had this very powerful voice and, and I resolved uh, immediately to read Beloved. I, I should have read it you know, four years ago and I can't believe, I couldn't believe I still hadn't read it even though I was in this class. And so I, I got Beloved to read. And it was unbelievably good. I mean, it was, I could understand why that was the book she wanted me to read of hers. And it, it is widely regarded as, as one of the canonical works of 20th century literature. And, but I suppose the, the reason why it's such an important and life-changing book for me isn't just because 
of what Beloved does. And Beloved does a great deal. I mean, Beloved is formally audacious. The, the way the sentences are built, the way that perspective moves, the, mm. the sense of a, of a ghost story, which is also another kind of story. It's, it's an incredibly weird, formally audacious, incredibly writerly book also. That I think as a, as a writer, when you see how something gets built, it's like being, I suppose, a, a, a second millennium BC construction foreman, and you stumble across the pyramids, and you think, okay, wow, this is, this is, this is some serious construction. So there was all of that. But of course, it's a powerful story, and it, it, it reveals just the degree of violence embedded in this experience of slavery and, and post-slavery, and the horror of that, in a way that nothing I'd read before that had, had quite impacted me in, in the same manner, in the same register. But beyond all of that, it impacted me because I was reading this book of, of, an, of a really aspirational level of genius and quality while you know, sitting at the feet of, of this writer, so to speak. And, and she was reading my work. And there was something about that interaction which gave me permission to imagine that I could be a writer, that I could really do this. And so for me, reading that book was part of, while writing my own first novel, the first draft of my first novel, was, was almost a sort of mystical experience in the sense that it was then that the door opened in my imagination, where I thought, I'm going to do this. I'm going to become a novelist. I'm really going to write books. They, 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 look what they can do. Yeah, so it's very important. Absolutely. And I can't imagine how wonderful and inspiring it must be to, ha to have had Toni Morrison as a tutor working on you with, with your writing. I mean, what a, what a, a, a rare and wonderful experience. Was, yeah, cosmic good fortune. Been. I mean, I think sometimes the universe just sort of spins the lottery and you happen to come up lucky. I mean, I didn't, I think, appreciate at the time just how unlikely and, and incredibly fortunate this experience was. And later I look back and think, did that really happen? That's kind of crazy <laughs> that that happened, but, but it did. And I would love to, I would love to discuss your, yeah, your relationship with that book and, and with, and having Tony be a, a mentor for you. However, I'm, I'm aware of time. And so I'd like to move on to your latest novel, The Last White Man, which was published this month. If you wouldn't mind for our listeners, just giving a, a sort of a brief explanation of the book, of, of what, what they can expect to see on sort of those first few pages. So in The Last White Man, a young man named Anders in an unnamed town in an unnamed country wakes up dark and he'd gone to bed light, skin color. And he hopes this hasn't happened. And he hopes it's in his imagination, but it has happened. And then he invites this woman he's been dating, Una, to his house to say, look, just look at me. And how do I look? And she, he wants her to say, oh, you sort of look the same. But she doesn't say that. She says, you look completely different and you look like a different kind of person. And he tries to hide from the world and not be seen, but he can only manage that for a few days and he has to go back to work. And when he goes back to work, he, he tries to communicate. He's still the same person that, yes, he looks different, but it's still him. And, and yet he's unable to communicate this. He finds that trying to be himself is a bit, self, is a bit of a self-conscious and sort of off-putting thing. It's not natural to try to be yourself. And so he tries to, in a sense, then copy everybody else and be like them. And in a sense, he, he's trying to look at the many white people in his gym and act white as it were but that becomes an impossible thing acting like you are white is 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 almost the opposite of being white in, in the sense that if for him if for anders being white was just being a default human being somebody who's just a person with nothing else attached to to need to act to get that sort of reaction from people is the opposite of having that and also it's the it, it created the opposite reaction people found him a bit strange and weird and why is he acting like this and he discovers that while he is only sort of his change is only skin deep uh, and he hasn't changed in fact he is changing that his identity is not just who he is it's also how he relates to people and as people relate to him differently he relates to them differently and 
and this whole predicament begins to spread and and other people begin to become dark and and it's it's sort of we don't know why or how but there's some resistance to this and and the novel really focuses on three relationships it's a love story between Anders and Una it's a love story between Una and her mother uh, Una has lost uh, her father many years ago and recently lost her brother and she's caring for her mother and her mother is in the grips, really, of, of sort of online theories and, and this notion of, of white people being erased and of, of being threatened. Uh, and Una is sort of trying to grapple with uh, helping her mother while, while sort of finding her mother's views slightly crazy, except that her mother can now say that her views are, in, fa- in fact, completely correct, because that is what's happening in, in the novel. And, and the other love story, so if one is Anders and Una, and one is Una and her mother, the other one is Anders and his father. And Anders, like Una, has lost a parent, in his case, his mother, some years ago. His father's very unwell. He's, he's in fact, dying over the course of the novel. And his father is, is, is unhappy at what's happened to Anders. But above that, he sort of has this fatherly instinct to, to protect his son and to give his son something. And their love story, really, the, these three love stories are, are sort of what's the tight domestic focus of the novel, while in the backdrop, the whole world changes slightly out of focus. Yes, and one wonderful thing I found reading it is that importance of those of those relationships in the book, and it's something that I feel it shares with again with a book such as Exit West, where you have this um this quite sort of high concept of something happening in the world which is which is unusual and and for you as the reader sort of requires you to look at the world in another way and begin questioning actually why is the world the way it is now but the the relationships those bonds between people and how they develop is is something that really really stands out so it it may seem like a silly question now i've said that but it, that's obviously quite important to your to your writing is those bonds yeah i think that there's this idea of love and the idea of connection between people is very central to to my fiction. In some way, all of my novels are love stories. Exit West was a story about a first love. And we call first love, first love, because presumably it ends. Otherwise, we just say the love of my life or love. Yes, yeah. But a first love is, is one that one had and then one lost. And Exit West is a, is a novel about, in a sense, how to let go well. In a world of migration, how to let go of the past well and enter into a new kind of world. But also in the world of the, the two main characters, Seda and Nadia of Exit West, how to have this love that permits you to let go when it, when it no longer works. But to let go, in a sense, well, to let go without sort of the anger and hate and, and fighting that, that normally characterizes how we let go of things. And in The Last White Man, in a sense, the, the love between Anders and Una is one that, that deepens mm-hmm. as they both change. They, they come to see each other in a way more clearly, that they, they start to recognize what about themselves is really at the heart of who they are and what was just sort of surface stuff that even though it changes, it reveals what was, what was deeper, a bit more clearly. But also it's a story of sort of intergenerational love because I think one of the real crises we face right now is that historically we would expect an older generation to have a sense of duty towards a younger generation where you try to leave a better world for that younger generation. But currently we see that the older generation in many countries is leaving a world with a degraded and despoiled environment with rampant inequality, with polarized politics, with devastating levels of debt. It feels like a real breakdown in the intergenerational covenant has occurred. And so I think part of the reason for that is perhaps that the older generation doesn't fully consider the younger generation to be their younger generation, their children. Right, There's some kind yes. of a rupture that's occurred. And so the novel, I guess, explores this also, the relationship of love between an, uh, a father and a son and a mother and a daughter, and to what extent there's some kind of redemption or connection possible in that relationship, which, which hopefully is a bit of a counter to the, to the generational breakdown that we've had in, in so many countries. 
sort of a, an antidote for it, as it were. Yeah, I think an antidote for it, because, uh, you know, another thing about the novel is that I suppose it's a kind of antidote for many things, one of which is that is that right now we live in a moment where the future has become so pessimistic for us. Much of my life, I'm 51, much of my life, I lived in a world where I thought things were going to get better. And that, of course, there were many inequalities and injustices and, and war and, and, and poverty, but that over time, those things would improve. But now, it seems so hard to believe that. It feels like things are getting worse. For so many people, it feels like that. And the danger of that view is that it results in a kind of turning away from the future and a politics mm. of nostalgia, a politics that says, let's go back to how things were 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 1,000 years ago. And all over the world, in country after country, Pakistan, India, Britain, America, you know, Putin's Russia, you see the same thing with the desire for sort of Russian greatness as it was before the end of the Soviet Union. In almost every country, there's a kind of nostalgic politics of taking us back to the good old days. The problem is the good old days you know, weren't that good. We are largely imagining what they were like. And even if we wanted to go there, we couldn't get there. You can't sort of make an omelet back into eggs. And so I think it's a very dangerous kind of nostalgic politics, this thing. And so part of what the novel, I guess, tries to do is to look into a future which, which is a future born out of many people's fears, and to say, perhaps that future isn't so frightening. Perhaps we can mm. find something optimistic uh, in it. Maybe there is a way to sort of recolonize the future as something desirable, and, and then to see if we, if we perhaps want to head in that direction instead of trying to grow back into the past. A very powerful uh, message for, for what is, in many ways, nostalgic and sort of pessimistic times. Yes. I, I'm aware of time... Mosin, I know you have to go. So thank you so much for, for joining us. As we said earlier, The Last White Man is out now. It's available on the Mostly Books website as well as in store and, of course, in your local independent bookshop. Mosin Hamid, thank you so much for joining us on Mostly Books Meets. Thank you. My pleasure. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because it helps people find us.